It was. It was three weeks ago. You're right. It was me, Gaining, then the Vic. All right, here we go. Let's try 27. Um, I have a slightly different translation, but it's just, uh, it's just one I favor because it's, it's nice. It's beautiful. It's soft. So it'll sound a little different than yours, but that doesn't matter, and it's okay. So, all right. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the refuge of my life. Of whom should I go in dread? When evildoers close in on me to devour me, it is my enemies, my assailants, who stumble and fall. If an army should encamp against me, my heart would feel no fear. If armed men should fall upon me, even then I should be undismayed. One thing I ask of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may be constant in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For he will keep me safe beneath his roof in the day of misfortune. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will raise me beyond reach of distress. Now I can raise my head high above the enemy all about me. So will I acclaim him with sacrifice before his tent and sing a psalm of praise to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I call aloud, show me favor and answer me. Come, my heart has said, seek his face. I will seek thy face, O Lord. Do not hide it from me, nor in thy anger turn away thy servant, whose help thou hast been. Do not cast me off or forsake me, O God my Savior. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me into his care. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Do not give me up to the greed of my enemies. Lead me by a level path to escape my watchful foes. Liars stand up to give evidence against me, breathing malice. Well I know that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then a little tizay to end it. Wait for the Lord, be strong, take courage, and wait for the Lord. Remember that? Remember the tizay bit? So, all right, there you go. So what's cooking in there? What's the first thing you think about? Got any initial reaction? What's going on? <sighs> That's right. And negative things about himself, right? Uh, that, and that's even about somebody else. So right. Yes, that's even about somebody else. So there's positive things about the Lord, negative things about other people, but also negative things about himself. Now, that is great in there. Wouldn't you rather be in that room? I mean, that's the room to be in if you have a choice next week. Now, how many kids are in there? Exactly. <laughs> this is like some invisible barrier. I know. It's great that there's no school. What's well, great? I mean, that's not a complaint. They're having a blast in there. Listen to that. How many kids are in there? Is there a dozen kids in there? I mean, there's nobody crying or being hit over the head with a block, so far as we know. Life is still good. I mean, this is, this is fantastic. We're four minutes in, and they're all still happy. The time is young. That's right. More, something else could happen. All right, so let me ask you this way. What, the thing, what things are you most scared of? The psalmist tells you there. What, what are you most scared of? Whoop, I want to stay right where I am, though. Hold on. What are you most scared of? 
What are kids most scared of? We open the, if we open the door, and the dark is one. People are scared of the dark. And part of the, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever been any place really dark? A cave is really dark, actually. Where they, do they, have you been in the caves when they turn the lights off? Yeah, that's a funny joke, isn't it? Yeah, that's nice. Okay, we're gonna, what if they don't come back on? <sighs> you're like way down there, and they turn them off, and you'll never, you're dead. Right. That's right. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Good. Yes, my friend? Do you really? <laughs> yeah. Once you have kids, it kind of cures you of that. You're like, oh, quiet here. So scared of the dark, scared of being alone. Good. Which, of course, you start to figure out now are both things happen to you when you die. There's no place darker or no place more alone than when you're dying, right? Or so that's how we feel about it, right? So he engages that um, immediately when he, when he reads the psalm. The Lord is illumination. The Lord is light. The Lord is um, salvation. The Lord is the way out, Okay. The Lord is the light of my life. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is refuge of my life. Whom shall I dread? And you remember that the Hebrew way uh, is to say things a couple of times over again. So <clears throat> you notice in John's Gospel, John's a good Hebrew, and it just it sort of goes like this. In the same way, um, then when John writes Revelation, Revelation is really a story of telling the liturgy three times, and he just tells it over and over again. So sometimes you think, you know, what's the difference between the first time and the second time? Sometimes there's a nuance. But what's the other reason? Why did the Hebrews say things over and over again? So you don't forget them. Right. So <clears throat> I don't know if you noticed. You probably, this is a little bit of an odd thing. But um, sometimes you, you don't have the same numbering that a Hebrew Bible would ha have. They um, diverge at Psalm 9. And part of the reason they do that is because in the verses of Psalm 9, the first, letter, the first verse starts with A, the second verse starts with B, the third starts with C, and they know it got cut in half because, you know, the psalm gets ripped in half and then Psalm 10 is suddenly, starts with P, and they know it went L-M-N-O-P, and they don't, ooh, they should have had those texts together. So the Hebrew has it one numbering, and, and the Greek or has it in a different numbering. But the point of all that, the reason you have, is just like you repeat things over and over again. You go A, B, C, D, E. So people could remember because what do you know about their culture? This culture. That's a silly question. You don't know. Sorry? Yes. Thank you. From a teacher. She knew where I was going. They didn't. They didn't. Yes. That's right. It's read to them. And then you memorize. This was a, this was a, this was a culture that um, told stories, right? And the way, you, of course, you, you tell stories, even... For example, if your kids can't read yet, you know how this is when you're reading them a book and they can say the words even when they don't know the words, right? Exactly right, yeah. It's, you hang your story on the hooks, right? So you, you, that's the reason, that's why things matter. And actually, there are some symbols buried in here. We're going to pick one up here in just a second. So, which they would, which you may not recognize, but they certainly would have. Okay. Yes, please.
Right. Well. <laughs> but they can but they may not be able to read. Correct. Yeah. So So that's good. Let them go, man. Is it that bad? Can you not, am I, is it just because it's not loud enough? Because we're not loud enough? Do we just need to speak? I hate to have, here's the thing, man. Nobody is crying. I mean, this is a huge victory. How, I mean, how, I mean, next we'll just, we'll roll the Vicky in there and have him rolled around the floor. Get, nothing's gone wrong in there. It's all okay. Let him be. Really, do you think, it, let him be, really, let him go. We'll just be louder, okay? We'll try to be louder. But, I mean, what the heck? You don't want church to be the place where they come and, like, somebody's doing this to them. You don't. But, it, yeah, just let them, let them go, man. It'll, they're going to be fine. All right, we'll just all, we'll try to speak up, okay? Because otherwise, um, you can't have any fun. So anyway, so you get this memory work. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom should I fear? So you're afraid of darkness. You're afraid of being alone. He's light. He's salvation. Salvation always goes with presence. We'll get to that in a little bit. The Lord is the refuge of my life. He's someplace to go. Okay, there's, it's a safe place. It's a safe house. It's a safe room. The Lord is the refuge of my life. Of whom should I go in dread? So I don't know if you get up some mornings. Do you get up some mornings and you worry about getting out of bed and where you're going? Is it fun for you to go where you go in the morning? I mean, do you like to get up and go to work? Do you like to get up and go where you go? Or do you sort of dread? Are there encounters where you dread? You have things you're worried about. I'm going to bump into a particular person. I'm going to see a particular thing. You know, you, we all have those kinds of things, don't we? We get up in the morning, we say, gosh, I'd rather not do that. I'm sure Jack and Maddie, you know, they would have rather not gone this morning. But sometimes you just have to get up and go, right? When evildoers close in to devour me. So we're afraid people are going to hurt us. We're afraid of darkness. We're afraid of being alone. We're afraid that people are going to hurt us. If my enemies, it is my enemies and my assailants who stumble and fall. Suddenly, you have some hopefulness. Now, why that poor child was singled out as the noisemaker, I have no idea. <laughs> that was a, that, but, but everything went quiet. <laughs> Leadership skills. That's great. She's got every one of those other kids wrapped around her finger. That's fantastic. Let her go. So already you get, but now, of course, you're going to have to have a question. Now, just, I'll just, I just put it out there for you. I mean, how do you know you're right? Beth, how do you know you're right and your mom some days is wrong. Huh? How do you know? Put the secret glasses on and you can see. How do you know? How do you know if your mom's right and you're wrong? How do you know if you're right and your mom's wrong? She gets a funny, that is a sign on which to hang the story, that funny expression on her face. Oh, no. How do you know? How do you know, how do you know who's evil and who's an assailant? How do you know who's an aggressor? How do you know? I mean, that's part of the problem, especially if you, uh, you know, the Psalms tend to pray against other people. I mean, they dash them against the rocks, wrap them up tight, and toss them in the river. So we'll have to figure out how you'll know, how you'll be able to know evil when you see it, okay? If an army should encamp against me, my heart would feel no fear. Now, that is a very... Um, real possibility in the Middle East when this is written. You've all seen, you know, Lawrence of Arabia or these movies where the enemy appears over the ridge, right? And suddenly, but the interesting thing is there's nowhere to go and no help is on the way. Um, I saw the, there's so many things happening in the news. I, you know, this poor boy who was beaten to death downtown, the police were on last night saying, um, you know, we dispatch people within two minutes and there was help there within seconds after that, 29 squad cars, they said. 
Now, here's the thing, um, not to be on any side of that political argument, but if health comes to you in the matter of a couple of minutes, that's a very different world uh, than a world where there is no health. So you're out in the dark and there is no light. You know, you're all alone and nobody will come to find you. You're attacked and there is no help. Um, that's a very difficult kind of world in which to live. And you can all sort of feel that sometimes. You're all alone, everything is dark. Attack is coming from all different directions. What do you do? Okay. So you need Where did he say that? Good, yes. Yeah, I'll be undismayed. I won't fear. Right. Right. Now, wh okay, so what do you do? Well, see, now, you, now if you say that, then, then I can't get a dig an answer out from anybody else, but go ahead. Okay, so <laughs> <sighs> how does fear work? What's the number one thing that you know about fear? What, what's the number one thing you know about fear? Uh, it could be, good, it, it can be irrational, though sometimes there's real things to fear, but it can be irrational, right? Sorry? A lion is chasing you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it can be irrational. How do you do that? No, it's all right. I don't care. I mean, this is, we were in New York City. I mean, this is, we were in New York City. We were in Brooklyn Sunday for, for with the bishop for, uh, for I mean, it was great because, there was about 20 Koreans. We sat in the Korean section. There were about 20 Bengalis. There were some, um, some Indians. And then the Caribbean section was over here. And behind us was the African-American gospel section. Then there were about five white guys. And we were three of them. <laughs> <laughs> it was the best, man. We did the liturgy to a Caribbean beat. It was so much fun because that was, I mean, that was a, uh, why am I telling them that? Where was I? No, I, why was I telling you that? About cell phone, oh, the cell phone. The reason the cell phone went off right at the Eucharist, and the bishop didn't miss a beat. Man, it was great. It was just like, man, that's, we got bigger problems than your people's cell phone going off. Uh, it, was, it was great because they, they, they were people who had real problems. Um, they just had a guy murdered, stabbed to death down the block a month before. Another guy had been shot to death. Um, a lot of people, um, HIV, AIDS positive, a lot of people without jobs. I asked about the recession and they said, it was an interesting answer, they said, it's always recession here so nobody notices. Isn't that an interesting answer? Just kind of think about that next time you're worrying about stuff. So, uh, but it was, it was a blast. Anyway, back to fear. Um, the one characteristic of fear which seems to always be true is <coughs> that it always looks at yourself. Yeah. All fear is self-fear. Last time you opened your mouth and nothing came out with that cell phone noise came out and I thought that was pretty cool how you're doing that. <laughs> da -da 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 -da. <laughs> what I was going to say is that um, when you think about it, it's not something that I 
<laughs> Same place I was going. <laughs> but I couldn't remember. Right. All right, well, let's just hold that for a second because there may be a way to talk about that. Yeah, I agree with you, but let's just let's hold that. We may figure that out. Um, there may be a simple test for that. So let's, let's figure it out. All right, still okay? So here's the thing about fear. The one thing about fear is, I mean, Holly said it is irrational. We have fears like we're alone, the dark, like in the cave. Really, you know, besides the bats, what's going to get you, right? I mean, nothing's really going to, well, unless you step off the ledge and fall into that crevice. Yeah, the spiders, the snakes. I mean, okay, but besides that, right, there's really not that much stuff there. So one thing you have to remember about fear, I mean, and, and the, the diagnostic question really is, I mean, and it doesn't, I don't know if you can be rational or not at those things, but there is some help in asking sometimes, what is it that you're afraid of? Because what happens when you ask what you're afraid of, you actually reveal what you love, and then actually it reveals whether or not you've got an idol. So love is, this is a proper love, and this is improper. So one of the things that, that anger actually does the same thing, by the way. When you're angry, it reveals your heart. Remember, this is the way back James Bible study where we said, stress and trouble not only builds character, it also reveals character. It reveals your heart. So on the cross, God's heart is utterly revealed to be love toward you, right? Because there's great stress on the cross, great anxiety, great trouble, great fear. It reveals his heart to be love. So what, one of the things that fear does is it reveals what it is that you love, and it also reveals whether or not that's an improper love. It's a very basic kind of stuff. So when you ask yourself, what is it that I fear, if you're about to be overrun by an army or you're about to be mugged or if there really are creeks and footsteps in your house, it's a proper sort of fear. I mean, if it really is happening, fear is a proper thing, and it tells you what you love. You love your spouse. You love your kids. You can even love your stuff. You just have to love it in the right way. But sometimes um, the things we want to hold on to have taken their illicitly love. So we have to figure that out. But here's the thing to remember. All fear is self-appealing. All fear is self-regarding. All fear looks important. When you're afraid, you're afraid for yourself and your stuff. That's what you're afraid. And that, that's pretty much everything. You're afraid for yourself and your stuff. Any fear is about it's yourself or your stuff. Go ahead. Oh, they are. Fourth commandment. Mm, those little stuffs. <laughs> they are your stuff in there they are your stuff in ones. I take your point. I'm sorry I shouldn't be quoting. It's they are in some sense. So let me just ask you a question about this one. Who's this one belong to? That's part of the answer. Fourth commandment is belongs to her. But who does this really belong to? Third commandment, baptism. So this is God's stuff right here. So if you're worried about this one, now it's okay because it's been, this one's been entrusted to you and you love this one and you bore this one and you have maternal care for this one. But at the end of the day, Jesus is going to do a better job with this child than you are. So it's up to him. <laughs> right? So now, now see the thing is, so there's a proper way to love your kid. There's a proper way to love your kid, which is a fourth commandment way. That, that kid belongs to me, has been given to me as a gift. 
There's an improper way. Um, so when people lose a child or a child gets hurt, and then, now this is very clinical, okay, so this is not going to go down very well, but I'm just going to say it to you. When people say, I could never love a God who let my child die. Okay, now I've lost a brother. I know what this is like. But if you, if you, when you say that, I could never love a God who let my child die, you've crossed the line to an illicit love because you love your child more than you love God. This is Luther who lost three or four kids of his nine. Three of his kids died. You know? So this is very, you may not like this very well, but this is how you start to define what the enemy is. Okay? Enemy is often about illicit love. Enemy is about having an idol. Enemy is about loving something more than God. Okay. No, you grieve them like crazy. Yeah, I don't mean to diminish. I, that's why I kind of said it was clinical. I don't mean to diminish anything on the emotional side and how it really feels. And when people say the worst thing you can say to somebody is, hey, snap out. When, when they have a death in the family, you say, yeah, snap out of it. Jesus loves you and they're in heaven. I mean, that is about the worst thing you can say to somebody because that's not how life works, right? We're so attached and we have relationships and we have emotions and everything is mixed up. So, no, but the ultimately, you know, ultimately, three, four, five years down the line, if people don't begin to heal up, there's, a, there's sort of a diagnosis there of they're loving the wrong way or loving the wrong thing. Go ahead. Right. You know, like not being able to, and I just want to comment. Um, well, I've talked about, you know, with your kid, you're not going to get what you want, or you're going to lose something that you don't really want to lose. At least you can have some kind of relationship. Right. Like if you and I are not getting what we want, at least we have some kind of relationship. Right. So I can give you a, a couple of ways to think about that. One is whoever sort of said that to you is right after a sense. But I'll also say it's the great shame of the church that we have poor people on the list. In the early church, you know, they had a different system. They didn't have voters meeting, and they didn't have all secret kind of ballots and everything. In the early church, read Acts, they brought the money to the pastors, and the pastors gave it to the poor. And so they didn't have any poor. It was a really simple solution. You just trusted your pastors to give out the money to people who were poor. Hmm. Hmm. Now we have a lot of people who are poor, and the church doesn't care for them very well. In fact, we, just so you know, I mean, just full disclosure, after we got to New York, <coughs> we ended up comping a lot of the stuff and bringing the bills back and we're going to run them through the pastor's fund because we didn't realize how poor they were. And we weren't going to charge them for all the stuff that, you know, like the rent-a-car and stuff like that because <laughs> they couldn't pay it. The bishop doesn't even take pay from his congregation. <coughs> so, you know, I mean, I can introduce you to some poor people, you know. It was, it, was, it was a very interesting, you know, kind of trip for that. It was a good trip to kind of reestablish priorities and rethink about what the church is. So part of it is, is a real fear. But part of the reason you have that fear, you should, when you join this community, you should have the sense that the rest of these people are all going to take care of you. And in this, that is not how we think, especially not how we think in Wheaton. Because try as we might, we can't get people to think as a community sufficiently. That was the other striking thing about this, where everybody was a different color, including us. It was utter community, because that was all they had. Inside the church was all they had. Every place else, people were being shot and stabbed, 
they came inside the church and swung the big steel door shut. Uh, everything was okay. The other fascinating thing was that we wore collars through Brooklyn, and it was like having a force field around you. They took us to the worst projects in um, New York City, and uh, we said, you know, tech <laughs> Marcus kind of go through a kind of a group of like six Hispanic guys as he was driving the big black Cadillac around the corner. <laughs> this, is, this is the gift of God. We didn't rent a Cadillac, but we got there. They said, your car's not here. Oh, man, they said, would you take that minivan? And we're like, we have to do that at home. <laughs> and then they said, how about this big, they had like a big Chevy Suburban. They said, how about this Suburban? We said, man, we got a park in New York City. She said, the only other thing I got is that brand new black on black Cadillac DTS with only 800 miles. <laughs> like, <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, with sacrifice for the church. We're like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was, that was kind of interesting to see Marcus behind the wheel in Brooklyn with a collar and, uh, you know, driving. To, but it was, it was impervious. We said, is there we said to the bishop, is there anybody safer than you? And he said, oh, yeah, the nuns. He was fascinating. He said the nuns go places where nobody else goes. And they go in habits, and they're, he said, they're the most courageous people around. You know, they're utterly safe until they're not safe, which, you know, you could sort of fill in the blank. You know, they're safe until they run into somebody who doesn't respect the nun. But it was fascinating to, to wear a cut. There's just an East Coast thing about respect for, for clergy that's not there in the Midwest. I mean, even, it was, it was fascinating. Father, you keep your left hand in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, just keep your left hand in your pocket. Hello, Father. But they, it wasn't just hello, Father. It was people would regularly say, walking down the street, bless me, Father. I'm like... Well, that's a different sort of attitude. Um, it, was, it was just a very interesting kind of, and we ate in a, an Italian restaurant in Howard Beach under a big picture of Tony Soprano, no lie. You can't make this <laughs> stuff up. <laughs> and there was about eight Italian waiters who just kept coming over and like, you know, they sort of knew the bishop and it was like, bishop. You know, it was just, it was very, it was very interesting because it was, uh, it was very much about the way of wanting to be blessed by people. Anyway, um, so whatever your fears are, Please make sure they're real fears, and please make sure that they are um, in proper order. But, of course, then you'll find out that they sort of disappear. Now, why do they disappear? That's what you go to next. So why does this guy say, um, I'm undismayed, or I'm, I'm not disordered, if you will, or I'm not put out of order, or I'm not um, unsettled? How can, you, how can you go through life uh, and be constant? How can you go through life and be settled? Now you get, you get the answer to that, and you also get the answer of how you know what an enemy is. One thing I ask of the Lord, big letters, L-O-R-D, the one who made the covenant, the one who chose you as his people, the one who takes care of you. One thing I ask of the Lord, one thing I seek. So here's the thing. The answer is a single answer. You don't have to remember very much to be Christian. You don't have to remember much to be afraid, or not to, to, to be unafraid. You don't have to remember much. It's not particularly difficult. One thing. A single thing I ask of the Lord, a, thing, a single thing I seek, that I may be constant in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You know how you tell good from evil? Whether or not people go to church every week. Whether they're at the Eucharist every week. Whether they live in community every week. Whether they speak well of people every week. Whether they put the best construction on everything every week. Whether they tithe every week. pretty simple diagnosis I would suggest one thing 
you're disordered and you want to be constant, I seek one thing, that I may be constant in the house of the Lord. I may be ordered in the house of the Lord. I may be present in the house of the Lord. And you see, you're ordered in the house of the Lord where the Lord orders things. You're present in the house of the Lord where the Lord is present. See how it makes sense? You're fearless in the house of the Lord where the Lord is anti-fear. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And of course, you remember we did beauty three years ago now, but that is the Hebrew word for the fire that lights up the sacrifice on the altar. It's the word for the fire in the burning bush where Jesus is present. So the, the answer is, now you go all the back, way back to the first verse. What is it that keeps you from fearing? What is it that you see from church? What is it that shows an enemy from a friend? What is it that guides your life? The answer is the same for each of those. It's the consuming fire of the presence of the Lord. Wherever the Lord is present, then there is illumination. There is wisdom. There is a path. There is holiness. There is safety. There is order. So there's one thing you need which is to be in the presence of the Lord. Where does the Lord make himself present? On the altar. When he's on the altar, what happens? Things are beautiful. The place is beautiful. Your life is beautiful. Your family is beautiful. Your community is beautiful. And your world becomes a beautiful thing. You become a nun going through the projects in Brooklyn because you carry the presence of Christ into the world. When people are utterly self-interested, when all they care about is what they want, when they have no sense about the community, when the interest is in running everybody else down and not running people up, when there are poor people in your midst and you don't share with them, you've lost the light, you've lost the presence, and you're condemned to have enemies and fear. It's very simple. One thing you need, you go to church. That's how you sort people out. People who absent themselves from the community have no purchase in the community. Here it is right here. One thing I ask of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I be constant in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I live and die in the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. So you'll notice then that how now, um, remember the temple's on Mount Zion. Um, that's the place where Abraham uh, Mount Zion is the place where Abraham went with Isaac, where Jesus was crucified, where the temple is. If you're focused, it looks like this. If you want to not fear, then your focus is like this, on the altar in the midst of the Holy of Holies, and not like this. It's a very simple diagnosis. So the question is, what are you afraid of? means you're looking at yourself and not at the Lord. You're wobbly, sick, and weak, sinful, horrible, all by yourself. But if you lift your eyes, I lift my eyes to the hill, where does my help come from? Is that what you're doing next time? My help comes from the Lord? That's the one you did, just did. We lift my eyes to the hills. Where's my, my, so I lift my eyes up. What does seeking mean? Seeking doesn't mean you find a guru. You know, seeking doesn't mean um, anything other than you go to the Eucharist. Boom, you lift your eyes up to where the Lord is present. Now, how's that settling in? That was kind of a long go. You still okay? Too easy, yes. I have leprosy. I have great I have great rivers back in Syria. He wants me to dip in the Jordan River. If he'd asked me to do something really hard, I'd have done it. But all he wants me to do is just swim in the river. I'm not going to do that. And then they say, come on, now, you 
What could it hurt? What could it hurt? Yeah, right. What could it hurt? So, you know, um, you still okay? Okay, now look at how he swirls around you. Presence. It's all about presence. Look at how he swirls around you. For he will keep me safe beneath his roof in the day of misfortune. So here's the roof, okay? So he'll keep me safe beneath his roof in the day of misfortune. Got it? Okay, now watch this. He'll hide me under the cover of his tent. Now you don't know, maybe you don't know too much Hebrew, but when you hear tent, what should you hear? Yes, brilliantly done. Way, way to go. So he'll hide me. And the tabernacle, you knew that the tabernacle, the cool thing about the tabernacle was those woven walls, right? They kept putting more and more walls up of woven stuff because they had to move it so it could go wherever you go. And then even the holy, holy, holy. But here's the thing. So he, I'm underneath, and now I'm in the tent. There's everything on the side. Now just keep reading. What comes next? Uh, he'll keep me safe beneath his roof in the day of misfortune. If there's any trouble, he'll keep you safe. You'll be under his roof. He'll hide me under the cover of his tabernacle. Of course, the tabernacle, remember what was above the tabernacle when they moved? A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Thanks for all going to Sunday school. And when the cloud was there and the fire was there, you could see a cloud in the day. You could see the fire at night. What did it mean? Yeah, the light's on. Somebody's home. Jesus is in, right? Okay, now just, the, just read the last one, right? Willing to take appointments. What's the matter over there? That, whoa. Yes, the doctors, that's exactly what it is. It's the same reason there's a light by the, in the Catholic Church, or Lutherans if you, have, you know what you're doing, there's a light by the tabernacle. Sometimes the light's on, sometimes the light's on. Why do you light the light? Jesus is in there. Yeah, that's why the light's on. That's why the pillar of fire by day, right? Or pillar of fire by night. Keep me safe under his roof in the day of misfortune. Hide me under the cover of his tent. And raise me beyond reach in the days of distress. So he'll put you up above um, all that crazy stuff that's down here, right? This is all disorder. So now what? So now I sort of ask you again. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just, what are you afraid of? What's that? Right. It's still there. You're still living in this world. People are still going to be rotten. Good people are going to do terrible things. They go crazy some days. It's okay if you still love them, right? Because um, inside here uh, is the Lord. This is where he's present. Underneath his roof, inside his tabernacle, lifting you above all the things that are disordered. So you sort of go through this life. This is like the nun in Brooklyn. What, I mean, why does she survive? Why, why, does a, why does a young white woman survive in the projects in Brooklyn? Not because she's a young white woman. She survives because she's wearing a habit. By the way, I didn't, I didn't say that. You have to wear your habit, obviously, right? You wear your habit. It's like, you know, protection. person who's weak. Yeah, first rule of walking in the city, walk like, well, walk like you should probably mess with somebody else, right? It is, it is actually true. People who live in bigger cities get an affect, you know, 
people who don't have an affect stand out. <laughs> Look, I mean, more stories from New York. We're standing out. The, I mean, this was a this is an incredible uh, 96 hours. We're standing outside the church. We're talking to the last people. Now we've gone 90 minutes in the service with just uh, a little bit of a. We're still got a little bit of a Caribbean thing going on. We're standing out talking to the last people. Three squad cars ro roll up, two doors down. People start tumbling out onto the front porch of this place. And, you know, we're still feeling good about ourselves because we're wearing collars. And the cops get out, and he, he goes to his gun as he's approaching the people. And I turned to him, and I said, now, we're about this far away. We're about as far away from you to there. And I said, you know, we're standing there. We're not, nobody's moving. We're like, well, you know, we're not going to move. And we said, I said, it's interesting. I said, I said, he pulls his gun as he's moving to the situation before he even knows what's going on. She goes, this is New York. I'm like, okay. I, mean, I just wasn't used to people, you know, sort of, you know, in Chicago even, that doesn't happen. Certainly in Wheaton, I don't know, they, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just a different sort of, you know, the different sort of world. It's still all around you. Chaos, it's all around you, right? Right? So, it's all good. So, now what? Look, it comes back again. Now I can raise my head high. So see, this disappears. Whoop, this goes away. Now I raise my head high, up, out. It's all about sight. It's all about light. You look up. I can raise my head high, even though the enemy is still all about me. And then what do you do? And this is always the laziness of the Christian life, where we go to church, we get what we want, and then we and stop coming to church. Hey, I got what I wanted. Jesus is just a big vending machine. You put in what you want. You push the Diet Coke thing. Trundles out. You're not thirsty anymore, so you don't come back. That's not being constant, right? So look what he says. Now I can raise my head high above the enemy all about me, so I will acclaim. And acclaim is a really good word. Acclaim is a word that means that the Lord evoked something out of you. He made the first move. And he pulled it out of you. That's why we talk about acclamations in, in, in the liturgy. We acclaim things. It's not that we got the good idea that we'd praise God. In some ways, the English word acclaim is better than praise. It's not that we figured out that we would finally praise him. It's that he did something, and that evokes a response. While we were still, still sinners, Christ died for us. That evokes a response. Um, go, you're healed. That evokes a response. Um, you know. So I'll acclaim him, and what do you do? Now it's back to the same thing, with a sacrifice before his tent, which means a sacrifice in the tabernacle. He gave you a sacrifice. He told you to do it. You do it because that's what it means to go to church. You'd go in the morning and the evening to the tabernacle if you needed to have a sacrifice done for you. We did this in Leviticus about six years ago, right? So you make your sacrifice, and you sing your psalm of praise to the Lord. So there you go. So that's just even the first half. The first half is, when you're in trouble, what do you do? When you're in trouble, you go to church. You go to the Eucharist. Why do you go to the Eucharist? Because Christ is there. Who is Christ? Christ is light. And when Christ is light, he scatters the darkness. The first words of evening prayer. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The light no darkness can overcome. No. So when the light's on, you know where to walk, you know who's good, you know who's bad, you know where to go. You can see in the distance it's going to be okay. Um, if you absent yourself from the church, from the community, though, that's the end of you. So the first half <coughs> is all about 
Um, that's sort of troublesome. Now the second half. So the first half in some ways is about God and how he fixes things. Now look at this. Here, oh, now, now, now you say, what do I got in my mind today? Hear, O Lord, when I call aloud. Show me favor and answer me. Come, my heart has said, seek his face. I will seek the face of the Lord. Now you notice how this is, now this is the Christian life. So the Lord says, please do this, and you say, thank you very much, I will. The Lord says, please say this. You say, oh, of course, I'd be happy to say that. The Lord says, please go here. Um, the, you say, I'd be happy to go. He says, don't touch that. You say, I won't. He says, you know, don't act like that. You say, never would I be caught acting like that. You see this, how this is back and forth? Now that you're inside this sort of safety net, you're inside the tent, and you're focused on the presence of Christ, your whole life changes. And now I'll just sort of go to this in case I don't forget about it. The enemy is anything that's not this, human or inhuman. The enemy is anything that's this. So the enemy is anything that's outside this, or the enemy is anything that's idle. So you're safe like this as long as you're bundled up in the Lord's name and have your eyes fixed on going to church, then you're going to be fine. And if you don't, um, then you're on your own, which is what happens to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, the sin was, they betrayed God's love because they wanted to be on their own. They thought being alone would be a great thing. It didn't turn out so well. We've been scrambling ever since. All right? Yes, please. Yeah, you could. I actually am pretty convinced now, after all these years, the only real, the only real sin is betrayal. That every sin is a, is a betrayal. And the opposite side of betrayal is the yearning for separation. So if you're my friend or you're my God and I betray you, what I want to do is be separate from you. I want to be on my own. So separation is the, is the, is the consequence of betrayal. Right? You could ask about what causes betrayal. I mean, Augustine said it was pride. You could say whatever you want. But my, the only sin, every sin I commit, every sin I commit against my wife is in some way I betray her. You can betray people in all sorts of ways. You tell a lie about them, right? You say you'll help them and you don't. Um, you see them being hurt and you just look the other way. There's tons of ways of betraying people, but every sin is a betrayal. And, it, and in betrayal, you want to be separate. It's too hard to be that person's friend. It's too hard to come to church. So I separate myself from that person. It's too hard to come to church every week. So I separate myself from the community. It's too hard to be generous. Now I've separated myself from poor people and sick people and weak people, right? So yeah, you're right. The problem is, is <laughs> if you keep separating yourself, you end up all alone and yes. And you die someday all alone and in the dark without community. And hell is just getting your way. So hell just means you get to be all alone in the dark forever, which is exactly Antichrist, who is the light of the world. You see how this plays out? It's so, it's so simple. It's so basic, which is why it's so easy to screw it up, right? I just don't want to be with you, you know? I just don't want to come to church. I just don't want to be generous. That's too hard. I just don't want to tell the truth. It's just you back yourself away, and suddenly you end up all alone in the dark. The great remedy, of course, is to be back in the community in the presence of Christ. Boom. Okay. So, come, my heart has said, seek his face. 
Then, of course, where do you seek his face? It's obvious to them. You seek his face at the altar, right? Seek his face at the altar. I will seek thy face, O Lord, and do not hide it from me. You remember that scripture talks about um, Jesus Christ as the image of God. That's why I read the Hebrews thing for you this morning. I mean, it's, uh, if somebody wants to look up a few of these, we'll just keep your finger where you are, but somebody look up Hebrews 6.4. Can somebody else look up Hebrews 10.32? And somebody else look up 2 Corinthians 4.6. Right? Just see what those look like. Because sometimes we don't connect presence and light and Christ, but we should. That's the most basic Christian impulse. The Holy Spirit is said to illumine you. Why? Because he points you to Christ, who's the light of the world. Somebody got one of those? Hebrews 6, 4. Fantastic. So what does that tell you? Two things. One is the last part about Christ is that you go back to the place of fear. And the first part is, is once you've fallen away, you're all alone again. Right? So when it tells you all the things that go bad, the opposite of Christianity is that it all went good. What's the next one? The one from Hebrews 10? Does somebody have that? I think it was 4. Hey, Vic, if, this, if 2 Corinthians 4, 6 doesn't turn out to say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that's what I'm going to be looking for, right? Hebrews 10, 32. What do you got? 10, 32. There you go. Read it again for me, just real, just kind of slowly and prayerfully so I can stick with you. So the early days, so you come into the church, and how do you come into the church? Baptism. Through baptism. After you've received the light, and light is a euphemism, thoughts, light is for what the Holy Spirit does, gives, brings, and Christ is the light of the word. So remember those early days when you first became a Christian, keep going. There you go. And, of course, you, when you think about the light um, and Jesus and the light, what <laughs> stories do you think about in Scripture? When you think about light and Jesus, what do you think about? Know. You know some. Do you know one? Let's see if you I mean, this is so hard. Look at all these big girls. But here's the thing. None of them know the answer. So there's probably, there's probably no big. So if you're thinking about light and the little baby Jesus, do you know any time when light and the little baby Jesus come together? Good. And when does, when's the, when does God come to earth? Christmas. <laughs> what is that? What did you say? Christmas, yes. Remember, there's angels and the stars and everything lights up at Christmas time. Way to go. Nobody else could get it. All right, what else? Um, can you think of another one with light? So Christmas, is, he starts in light. Where else? Where else is the other big light experience? We've done this. Transfiguration, of course, yeah. They, they tumble down because of the light. Boom, they can't stand it. All right. All right, so I seek the face of the Lord. Don't hide from me in your anger. Don't turn away. Do not cast me off or forsake me. You're begging him to stay by you even when you're a bum. This is great stuff. Because you're not always going to get it right. I mean, here's the thing. I don't want you to leave today thinking, being a pietist. Well, you know, I'm this and everybody else is this. I mean, if you leave today thinking we chose up sides, I'm this and everybody else is this, or I'm this and everybody else is this, you, you didn't get the point. Because what does the psalmist say? The psalmist says, I'm a bum. Come, my heart says, seek his face. I will seek your face. Don't hide from me. Don't turn away from your servant in anger, whose help you've always been. Don't cast me off. Don't forsake me, O God, my Savior. Go. Go. 
That's right. You don't touch it. When there's evil all around, you don't touch it. This is what, yes, you bear the person. You bear the person. And burden doesn't always mean evil, for example. Or it doesn't always mean illicit evil. Let's take that between death and telling a good lie. Okay? Um, let's just take Jack and Maddie. Let's be realistic. We'll take Jack and Maddie. We love Jack and Maddie. Jack's been challenged a couple of times. Jack's got a bad read going on. Somebody's going to take a good look at him and decide what they have to do. In a pure sense, that's an evil thing that's happening to Jack. The body that he was given in Eden is coming apart, perhaps. So you go to ju- Jack, you hug him, you pray for him, you're nice to his wife, you're incredibly nice to his daughter, who's an only child and exposed upstairs because she has all the concerns of the church coming across her death. You pray for them repeatedly, put in a good word, you remind them that the Lord is there for them always. You see him at the Eucharist across the way. That is bearing their burdens. That's different from somebody, but that's an evil thing that you're bearing. And he's facing death, which is a, which is a, which is a, which is a, <coughs> wasn't meant to be. But somebody who tells a good lie, I mean, my answer is, don't touch it. So you can't repeat it. You should rebuke it. If you're not strong enough to rebuke it, you just have to walk away from it. You need to isolate it and let it shrivel up all by itself. If you repeat gossip you're as evil as the person who told the gossip. That's not bearing somebody's burden. That's increasing their burden. That's hating people. To gossip is to hate people because you increase their burden. To lie is to hate people because you increase their lie. Not to put the best construction on things is to hate people because you increase the press. You ruin the community, right? So you have to have some spiritual wisdom about how you engage things. The other thing is, is there's a reason. Let's just take the Catholic Church. There's a reason the Catholic Church has a group of people who are exorcists and that's all they do so they encounter evil face to face and that's all they do and they have liturgies and they have prayers and they meet together and they face things nobody else faces and then we blithely sort of stumble up to evil like we're just going to take care of it there's a reason people are trained to deal with evil because it's exhausting it's exhausting so you shouldn't sort of you know the old saying about fools rush in where we're angels fear to tread mm-hmm. you know so there's two kinds of things. You love people who are gathered near the altar as they suffer, Jack and Maddie. But when there's evil in the air, you don't touch it or you contribute to it, you accelerate it, you make it worse, you give it life. And at the end, you end up far away and all alone. Yes, please. <coughs> yeah, there. Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. Right, right, right. There are ways to um, there are ways to isolate yourself from that. So, for example, if you fight uh, with your family every year at Christmas, um, you drive, so you have your means of escape available. I'm just being serious. I mean, and you leave before you know. Or there are, you know, there are some things where, and this is not always a good thing. It's a mark of weakness. But there are some things for families that are just off limits. You know, now I'm well aware the first rule of a dysfunctional family is um, to not say what's on your mind. And secrets are the thing that kills people, right? In a church, in a family, in a community, secrets. When people are telling secrets, you know things have gone bad. Uh, as one as one guy, new member said to us one time, he said, he said, he said, I came from a church where there was a lot of secret meetings, 
no good ever came out of a secret meeting. You know, I thought, well, at least you learned that. That was good. So what you do is you try to control your own destiny in those particular things. And then you give a good word when you can. So I mean, this is a little bit with here. Partly what, partly what I observe in people sometimes is they try to fix things way too quickly and without the tools, right? So it's like us as pastors. We don't do any psychological counseling. And pastors shouldn't because we have no, I can maybe say, maybe you should go see somebody about, let's just take marriage. marriage. We'd basically say, well, beyond sin and forgiveness, we're not much good, but here's a list of therapists. You probably want to go talk to them and see what their evaluation. We don't even say, you really need counseling. We just say, maybe you should talk to them and see. But in terms of evil, that's what pastors do all the time. People always rush in and think they can diagnose and treat and care for evil. And it's just ham-fistedness, you know. It's, it's, uh, and part of it is we live in Wheaton where people aren't being shot and stabbed. One of the really good things about going someplace like that is that going, going to New York is, man, it's fresh and alive. You can really see where the lines are drawn. You notice none of us rushed down the street and pulled our guns out. <laughs> that wasn't ours to solve, right? But people in the church always think they can rush in and solve things that they have no ability to solve, and they don't have the stamina to stay with it, right? So you learn things, and you can do things along the way, but only go as, my, my point in all that is only go as far as you can go. And it's not always good to absent yourself, from, from especially from family, to have somebody who's a black sheep or cast out. Occasionally it happens. Uh, and there are occasionally in every family, there are some people you have to watch, you know. In, every, in, in most families, there's somebody you don't leave alone with the kids, right? In most families, there's somebody that you're careful about. I mean, in most families have that if you just kind of dig around enough. So you have to be wise. But how you solve things, it takes, it takes a lot of work. So there's something between abandoning people and just sort of acting as if nothing has happened, and you have to figure out where that is. And you probably work that out with your pastor, with Marcus. So... Yes, please. I'm just sort of speculating. I'm just having oh. fun. Of being betrayed. Yeah, which would be not being forgiven. Yeah, right. So here's the, and this is why sometimes sacraments work better for people than words. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm saying this is why sometimes they work better. Because if I say, I forgive you, you may or not believe me, and then you, did he really mean it? And, you know, did he wink at me when he said that? Or did he have something in his eye? Or blah, blah, blah. But when you actually take the Eucharist to somebody and you put it in their mouth, the body of Christ, Christ touches you, and you can't screw that up. I mean, you can't, you either got the Eucharist this morning or you didn't. There's like no in-between. Now, if I say, Rebecca, I still love you and I forgive you, you could say, did he really forgive me? Is he sincere? Is he just playing me? Could it really be that good? I don't you. But if somebody gives you the Eucharist, you either had it on your tongue or you didn't. There's no in-between. Right. And, but when you're talking about the hierarchy, right. Yes, that's, we can drive people away when they think they won't be forgiven. Absolutely. They become the enemy because they're afraid of it, That can be one scenario. It's not every scenario. For example, Satan himself would not, that wouldn't be the issue. Satan's trouble is that, but for many of us, in a very practical, that's a very keen observation. One of the reasons 
you and I may be at odds with others because you can't really believe I could forgive you. And you can't really believe that you can be forgiven, which just tells you how bankrupt the church is because the, the church hasn't done a very good job of talking to people about confessing their sins and being forgiven. So we end up looking just like the rest of the world where everybody kind of dances around each other. I've been thinking a lot about that lately, how in the church, <coughs> how much truth-telling has been diminished because we use all sorts of models from outside. We use business models, we use psychological models, and, and those models are all about influencing people and getting stuff done and kind of making people feel good enough that they'll react. Where the church is about telling you the truth. This is good. This is evil. Have a lot of this. Don't touch this. As soon as you say that to people, people's reactions are things like, you don't really like me. Or how dare you say that to me. Or if you talk like that, we'll never get anything done. Or fill in the blank. The church's job is to say, this is evil. This is an idol. Don't touch this. This is really good. Have a lot of this. This is all about me and my fearful heart. This is all about Christ and his presence on the altar, the beautiful thing that will sustain me through the day, that will lighten the, lot, the world and never leave me alone. You get it? That's what the church is supposed to do. In this day and age when nobody will be told what to do, uh, God, God forbid you tell anybody in Wheaton they were wrong, did anything wrong, you know, how can we help? Be present. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, exactly right. You have to make a place for them. Yeah, you can't ever say that. Right. Because it's not your altar and it's not your space. Yes, that's right. Well, the church has just been horribly bad at doing Jesus things for a couple thousand years now. So, but wouldn't it be nice if you could all live in a church where people actually did the Jesus thing? Right. 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 Because it gives people the freedom to be wrong. And the opposite of that is to be, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't just mean the other person. I meant I get to be wrong, and you get to be wrong, and you get to be wrong. Exactly. Right. Right. And the opposite of that is the pietists were acting like, I never do anything wrong. And nobody ever says that about anybody else. We, by the way, just say it about ourselves. I never do anything wrong, but all of you have very strange possibilities for wrongness. Yes, right. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> yeah, but see, the thing is, is I mean, and, and this is misdrawn in some ways because the guy was in the first person, but uh, you know that there's thousands of people in this space, right? This is full of damn sinners. I mean, I don't want you to leave with the idea that this is for the church is for holy people. We got, yeah, we got toes going out, and we're peeking outside, and doesn't that look better? And maybe, you know, it's like, yeah, no, this is populated by every one of us. So the goal here is to get everybody on the same page looking this way instead of looking at each other or looking at yourself. If I'm looking at myself, then I do one of two things. I either despair because I'm so rotten, or I think I'm way better than the rest of you. 
right? When I'm looking at myself, there's just two possibilities. I become a Pharisee or a publican. I'm horrible. Remember the story of the two guys praying in the temple? The one guy says, I'm glad I'm not like anybody else. Pharisee, I'm better than you are, right? What's the other possibility? I'm so horrible, God could never forgive me, nor could anybody else want, want me. God doesn't want me, nobody else wants me. What does that do to me? Outside the tent, into the dark, right? Which is why this is, the psalm is all about calling people home. You're trying to get people back into the, it's all about the presence of Christ. At the center of the psalm is the presence of Christ, the beauty of the altar. Exactly right. Right. He thinks he's fine. He's never fine. Exactly. Right. And the other thing is we're not very good at telling each other. I wish you were my wife saying this, but uh, <laughs> I'll just say it. Over the years, I would just, I'm not looking for full disclosure in front of the group here. But I would suggest to you that over the years, we've gotten better at telling each other what's wrong with the other person. <laughs> That's all you need to say, really, after that. Beyond that, nothing else <laughs> is going to be helpful, right, at this particular point, okay? <laughs> a great friendship is the same way. Right, exactly right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Exactly. When you, exactly. Right. Right. When you won't tell people they're wrong, you hate people. You're, if, if you're in sin and I don't tell you that you're in sin, I hate you because what's going to happen to you? You're going you're to keep going into the darkness, into the separation. So it's, although it's very painful to say to somebody, I love you and this is wrong, and to mean it. I'm not talking about I love you and this is wrong because I'm pushing you out of the tent. That's how you tell whether it's working or not. It's about I love you and this is wrong and will you still be in the tent? Everybody in the tent, right? So when we can't do that, that's, this is the whole pietism thing, which actually has a really, in Wheaton, it has a, it has a strong fervor. This, this thing of Wheaton, everybody's okay and nobody ever does anything wrong. And then people who, before the recession was bad, you know what was really interesting about this congregation? People would lose their job and they'd leave. Because they were so embarrassed that they'd lost their job and everybody else had a job. We have people, we probably have a dozen people who have lost their job and left this congregation since I've been here because they were so embarrassed that they lost their job. Now that everybody's lost their job, people are just hanging around, which is great. You know, that's the way it should be. I mean, it's fascinating how love and hate work. You know, you can actually, leaving people alone is a way to hate them. Right? It's a way of hating people. If you never straighten your husband out, it's a way of hating him, not loving him. You'd agree with this, I'm sure. If you never, yes, I mean. We're getting overtime here, but I don't want to keep you too much longer. We should just finish up. Teach me your way, O Lord. Where does that happen? In the presence of Christ, in the tent, at the altar. Teach me your way, O Lord. Do not give me up to the greed of my enemies. So I don't want to play by that set of rules. Please protect me. Lead me on a level path, see, not disorder, order, to escape my watchful foes. The pietists are always watching for me to drop as if me being a sinner would be the end of me. Me being a sinner is my nature, right? Liars stand up to give evidence against me, breathing malice, but then here's the opposite. Well, I know that I shall see the goodness, the light, the joy, the peace, the beauty of the Lord in the land of the living. And just the last thing, the, what's the land of the living? Uh, can be, but you're in the middle of it already. What's the first land of the living? 
Eden, and then after that, uh, okay, but too far. Okay, good. First, first, first Eden, then Israel, then the Promised Land, then Calvary, then the Church, and someday the New Eden. Right. So wherever you find yourself in history, you're trying to get back to the land of the living, not the land of the dead. The land of the together, in the light, not the land of the alone, when you're all by yourself and have to be afraid. Got it? Isn't that great stuff? You just kind of pray that through now. You just, when you just pray that, you just sort of pray that through. But remember, it's about the presence of Christ and the community and the love and the light. and you know, The Lord will sort it out. All right? Phew, that was long, 10 minutes. I really wanted to keep to 1030. All right, so let's pray and then off you go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so very much. See you next time. The psalm is going to be 4-6. Four, six. Four, and by the way, if there's some that you want to do now, I've got two or three requests. We're going to start doing those. If you have a psalm you want to do, let us know. Even a bit of a psalm, if you like 119 or something, let us know. Thanks. See you. Bye.